Hello and welcome to Harvest Church Podcast. Harvest Church is based in sunny Durban, South Africa. We are a family of believers who are passionate about Jesus. We really hope this message inspires you today. It is really good to be back. It's good to see so many familiar faces, some people that have come home this morning, and we welcome you with open arms. We welcome the visitors. For those of you that don't know me, I'm a volunteer here, so be careful what you volunteer for. (laughs) A number of years ago, one of my very first clients arrived for counseling. She was the mother of a teenage boy, and she was incredibly tearful, very anxious, and a bit overwhelmed. And the majority of the hour, we actually spent talking about her teenage son. She had found that his mathematics homework had become too difficult for her. His projects were a bit too challenging, and their marks were dropping. She was incredibly worried about him. Do any parents identify with the story? My husband raised his hand and our son is sitting next to him. She was very worried about him. She loved him with all of her heart, could see this incredible potential and really wanted him to experience success in every area of his life and mostly to avoid some pain. And after working with her for a while, she began to realize that although she thought her son was the source of her many uncomfortable feelings, some rather crazy thoughts and some very surprising behavior, even for a parent, there were actually two other problems that she needed to address. The first one was that she needed to answer the question, where did she end and where did her son start? In other words, she had an inability to differentiate her life from his life. It seemed as if she was still attached to him somehow with this original umbilical cord and was sustaining his life with her very own. The problem was that this resulted in some conflict, a fair share of criticism, and a somewhat deteriorating relationship, and far less peace for her, and certainly less joy for him. And most importantly, she was robbing both of them from being independent, self-managing individuals. What was interesting was that she was feeling responsible for areas that she had very little authority over. Now, responsibility and authority are interesting concepts. When we feel responsible for areas that we have no authority in, it makes us go a tad crazy. And when we have responsibility and we don't take authority, you will notice that the people around you will go a little bit crazy. And for this particular mother, I think the biggest problem was that she was not leaking the love in her behavior that she actually felt for her son. 
Now, as often happens in these situations when we get confused on where we end and where others start, as interestingly, this is not limited to the parental-child relationship. This happens with employers and employees. It happens with our friends. It can even happen from children to their parents. And when this happens, we start working harder on somebody else's life than we do on managing what's going on inside our own hearts. Now, her second challenge was that she was not living with what's called a healthy level of self-awareness. She was unable to differentiate between her thoughts and her feelings and how they were impacting her behavior. In fact, her behavior was, very, was not goal-directed, but rather reactive, because she wasn't asking herself the simple questions in the moment, what am I feeling? and being curious about those feelings and not allowing those feelings to dictate her behavior, but to apply some logic and choose goal-directed behavior. Neither of these two were living in the agency and the self-efficacy that I believe God has called us to live with and which is required for us to have a healthy, emotional connection with others. Now, fast forward this story to 23 years later, and literally hundreds of conversations that I've had with fathers, with mothers, with brothers, with sisters, with friends, with employers, with employees, and I have found that this has actually become a very familiar story. I have realized that although the names, the ages, the roles, and the types of relationships change, we all seem to share this fundamental challenge that is helpful to address. Where do we end, and where does someone else start? What are we responsible for, and what is actually the responsibility of others? And how can we become more self-aware and conscious of our feelings and our thoughts so that we can actually choose goal-directed behavior with agency and self-efficacy? And most importantly, how can we learn to love well without clumsily stepping into someone else's lane? And the title this morning and slide number one is looking in and loving out. And I'm gonna be taking you on a bit of a journey this morning on how looking inside ourselves and growing our self-awareness and becoming aware of our emotions, our thoughts, and choosing goal-directed behavior can actually help us to love others better. The text this morning is going to be Romans chapter 14. And this was written to an interesting bunch of people who had a problem with where they ended and where others started. In fact, they were also clumsily stepping into everybody else's lane with contempt and judgment, the scripture says. And interestingly, they were not experiencing the joy and peace that comes from a life in sync, in step with living with the Holy Spirit. 
that before we go to the text, I want to give you some language from the social sciences in order to help us understand this passage better. And slide number two, a philosopher once said, oh, nice slides, thank you, Sean, for doing those for me. Harvest doesn't let me do my own slides, so. <laughs> so that's not my work, that's great. A philosopher once said, the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. And slide number three, Brené Brown has expanded on this concept in her latest book called Atlas of the Heart, which is available, I think, only in South Africa on Kindle, and it is really worth reading. And she writes this, language is our portal to meaning-making, connection, healing, learning, and self-awareness. Having the access to the right words can open up entire universes. When we don't have language to talk about what we are experiencing, our ability to make sense of what is happening and share it with others is severely limited. Without accurate language, we struggle to get the help that we need. We don't always regulate or manage our emotions and experiences in a way that allows us to move through them productively, and our self-awareness is diminished. Language shows us that naming an experience does not give that experience more power. It gives us the power of understanding and meaning. And we thank God for Brené Brown. So, this morning, some new language for some of you. The term differentiation of self, and I've also put that up there on a slide because I do realize it is a bit of a mouthful, but hopefully by the end of this talk, it will fall so easily off the tongue and you will know exactly what it means. Now, differentiation of self is a critical relationship skill, and differentiation of self actually has two parts to it. The first aspect of differentiation of self is what the mom couldn't do. She could not separate herself from her teenage son. She didn't know where she ended and where he began. And to a certain degree, she was enmeshed with him. Now, this is not uncommon for parents. I have a joke with my mates that I say to them, how are you? And they generally answer as well as the wellness of their least well child. Differentiation of self allows us to, re to retain our distinctiveness from others, but to maintain our connection. Differentiation of self has a second part to it, and that is the ability to differentiate what is an emotion, what is a thought, and then to choose goal-directed behavior. You see, if we don't have language for our emotions, we don't know what's going on inside of us. And it's helpful to be curious about our emotions, to say, where is that emotion coming from so that we are not reactive and victims to our emotions? My husband has a bit of a joke that he, he, he talks about. He says that when I met him, he only had one emotion, and that was hungry. <laughs> now, what's interesting about self-differentiation is that once you can identify your thoughts and your emotions, and you can be distinctive from somebody else, you actually realize that other people 
are distinct individuals and other people have thoughts and emotions and opinions that are not like yours. And that's okay. Because difference isn't wrong. And that is the key to differentiation. You are you, I am me, I have thoughts and emotions that I am regulating, I'm fascinated in, I'm curious about, and then I'm able to choose goal-directed behavior. And my goal-directed behavior is not gonna be the same as your goal-directed behavior. So your opinions, I can be interested in them, I can respect them, I can hold space for you, because you are different from me, and I can love you in your difference. Are we all on the same page so far? Now, what is fascinating about relationships, and this is the last concept until I get to the passage, what is fascinating about relationships is that there are two pools in relationships. On the one pool, you have this incredible desire for intimacy, for connection for that person that knows you exist, that believes in you, that backs you. You are created for connection. And we are starved when we don't have it. Remember lockdown. We need people, which is why it is so good to come back to church. I need the physical touch and the hugs. I need the verbal affirmation. I need to make eye contact because I am created for connection. But there is another part of us that I believe we are also created for, and that is we are created to be autonomous, to be independent, and to be self-managing individuals. Sometimes that looks like I want it my way. <laughs> and these two pools are often at odds with each other in relationships. Now, I feel this pull every time, I just need to go to my notes. I feel this tension, not every time, but many times, when we drive out the driveway and my wonderful, competent, incredible husband, whom I love with all of my heart, turns left when our destination is very clearly on the right-hand side. And there is something in me that seems to unleash this thing that my way is the right way, and I know the way to get to Gateway. And it is on the right-hand side, and anybody who's been to my house, our house, you see the independence coming out there, will know that when you go out the gate, you turn right. <laughs> now, self-differentiation on a good day, which let me admit while I'm confessing, I am not well differentiated when it comes to any kind of car experience. Self-differentiation would be able to say, Marilyn, what are you feeling right now? You're feeling out of control. What are you thinking? You're thinking your way is the right way. How do you want to behave? 
my gorgeous husbands, I trust you that your directions are not the wrong way, and I am just happy to go with the flow in this vehicle and not add, even if it takes us longer. <laughs> Healthy differentiation allows us to balance these two pools between intimacy and independence and autonomy and attachment. And Romans chapter 14, you thought I was never gonna get there, gives us some incredible insights on how to do this well, which is slide number four. And it's a long passage. <clears throat> I was gonna read it from the Message Bible, but then I wouldn't have been able to preach a message because it basically says everything that I'm gonna say. So I've chosen this version, so I have something to say. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves Notice that tricky little word there. Not of someone else. Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking or throw anything else in there that causes conflict between you and your friends, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. This is an excerpt from a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome that was made up of two very different groups of people, of Jews and Gentiles. And the issue that Paul was addressing was causing division in the church. It might not seem like a big deal to us, what you eat and what you drink, but this issue was causing, this was a big issue, and it was causing division in the church. And what was so fascinating is that by, in order for Paul to draw the two groups together, he brings the readers back to the essence of the Christian faith. The members of the church thought that they knew what the problem was. They thought it was about eating and drinking, but Paul's solution to the problem shows that there was a far greater problem. The real cause of their division 
and I would like to suggest of most division, whether it's going left or right in our driveway, whether it's church division, whether it's friendship or conflict in families, the real cause of most division is that they had forgotten the grace of God in their lives. And Paul's solution is explained in Romans chapter 15, verse 7. And many Bible scholars believe that this particular verse is the culmination and the synopsis of the entire book of Romans. And he writes these words, accept one another just as the Messiah accepted you to the glory of God. Acceptance is not agreement. Acceptance is grace, the same grace that we receive from Jesus towards the person. And let me add here, just in case we need this detail, acceptance is the absence of denigration and ungrace. Now, I remember way back, I've been in church for a long time, and I remember when drums was a divider in church and the cause of a lot of ungrace. I've read of Mahatma Gandhi. When he was asked to leave a church because he was not white or high-cost Indian, I followed a story a couple of years ago where a well-known Bible teacher and church leader responded to a tweet of a female leader who had tweeted that she'd spoken from a pulpit in a mainstream church, and he replied with the words, go home. I know of many who have been shown ungrace for their choices, for their opinions, families divided, people cut off, and all in the church. And I'm speaking about Christians this morning because I am one. And I know what I am capable of. Strong beliefs produce strong behavior. And sometimes our behavior is full of ungrace. Mark Twain tells a story about placing a dog and a cat in a cage together to see what would happen. He found that remarkably they could get along. He then put a pig, a bird, and a goat in a cage, and remarkably, they could get along. He goes on to say that he put a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a Catholic together, and that there was not a living thing left. <laughs> I wonder what he would say about a vaxxer and an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> Does the solution to our people problems remain the same? Accept one another the way Jesus accepted us as we are, with all of our warts, with all of the stuff, not pretending that it's not there, but receiving each other, welcoming each other with the same grace that Jesus has for us. How's my time, my darling? <clears throat> no, that, I've just got the time there. Are we fine? In this particular passage in Romans, we see that many of the church members had their knickers in a knot. They were investing a lot of energy 
and effort on the behavior of others and what others were up to instead of focusing on the condition of their own hearts. And I think that this is a classic example of one of our human idiosyncrasies. To spend effort and energy worrying about what she's doing, what he's doing, what they are up to, how they spend their money, where they spend their time, whether they're working hard, not working hard, instead of putting our focus on the condition of our heart. And of course, we moralize our personal preferences, don't we? Thinking our way is the right way, and because it's the way we do it, it must somehow be the only way. Now, I have three very short points this morning, some applications, some tools on how to look in and love out. And I'm gonna spend most of the time, just a few minutes on the first one, briefly mention the second one, and then use the third one for a practical application. And my three thoughts on this, to look in and to love out, is that we need to learn how to replace external criticism with internal introspection. Because if the goal is to accept one another, as Christ has accepted us, we need to stop criticizing. The second one is to understand the delicate dance of interdependence. This pull, I'm independent and I am created to be intimate with you. And then the third one is that some of us might need to resign from some unhelpful roles and sign up for new ones. In this passage, Paul emphasizes that the readers should stop judging each other, treating them with contempt, and says that they will all stand before God's judgment seat. Now, if you read a bit back in this passage at the beginning of Romans chapter 14, you will see that there are two groups of people. There are the strict that lived according to the laws and the regulations, the legalities, and then you had the free who were a little bit more freer in their application. The strict judged the free. They judged them for their freedom. The free treated the strict with contempt. One theologian writes that they actually flaunted their freedom, looking down on the strict for their lack of freedom. And essentially, Paul is saying that both of these groups are missing the mark. If you are free this morning and you have contempt for your brother who is living according to some stricter rules, and if you are strict this morning and you are judging the free for their freedom, we are both missing the mark. Why? He says that both of these behaviors are inappropriate because we will all face the judgment seat of Christ. Now, facing the judgment seat of Jesus, I've got some good news for you. This might not be your normal picture of judgment. When I was a little girl and I first heard this, and even into my 20s and 30s, I was terrified of the judgment seat of Christ. I imagined myself in this public space, much like church with all the eyes on me, and all the thoughts that I'd ever had, my worst thoughts, my worst behavior that nobody knows about, would be played up on a public screen. 
And then somehow I would have to offer a defense, give an account for myself, for everything I had done wrong. And I'm not great in conflict. I seem to lose my words. So this is not a great picture for me. But I'm not convinced that this is the type of judgment that Paul is referring to. You see, the word for the judge's seat is the same word used for the judge at the Olympic Games. Now, after each game, all the participants would come before the judge's seat. And do you know what the judge used to give them? Their medals. The judge wasn't looking for what they had done wrong. The judge was looking to reward them. How brilliant, how beautiful is this picture, knowing because we know Jesus' death was our defense. Our slate is wiped clean. So when we give an account, Jesus is not looking for what we did wrong. He is looking to say, Sean, gold medal for you, dude. How cool is that? And that's why we need to replace external criticism with internal reflection. Because you know what? Criticism is not the heart of God. And when we partner with criticism, we are partnering with the accuser, not with the grace giver. Let's give up on being the critics and start looking for what people are doing well. When our kids were growing up, Robin and I decided we would have this parenting mantra, catch them doing something right. Now, we would try and find good behavior, reward them with it, acknowledge it, and use that as an encouragement to do better. We tried to avoid making negative withdrawals. Now, Rob is far better at that than I am, okay? I am the one that can see the one Barbie shoe that has been left behind after great effort, I can correct the icing on the cake, and I can remake a bed that has been made with the best effort. There is a very fine line between being analytical and being critical, and some of us need to work harder at where we fix our gaze. <clears throat> Jesus puts it in this slightly firmer language in slide number eight. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? I think Paul was quite aware of his planks. Paul was a grace guy. He wrote a lot about grace, but he also wrote in a letter to Timothy, I am the chief of sinners. He didn't say I was. He said I am. This is such strange language for someone who said there is no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ Jesus. So what was he talking about? You see, I don't think grace replaces internal introspection. I don't think grace replaces an awareness of what we need to grow in us. In fact, I think grace gives space for internal introspection because when I come to the Father with his grace, knowing my slate is wiped clean, I can say like David, search me and show me my heart and show me if there's anything wicked that I need to change. Grace gives space 
for internal introspection. And internal introspection replaces external criticism because when I partner with a great giver and I reflect on my criticism, I realize that I'm partnering with accuser. And when I accept one another, the way Christ accepted me, I glorify God. And that is what we are actually here for. Number two. This passage shows us that there is this delicate dance of interdependence. We are responsible for ourselves. We are going to give an account for ourselves. And yet, we have a responsibility to others. This is not the simple you do you and I do me concept that we hear so popular in our language today. It's not about you doing you and I doing me. It's about me doing me so that I can love you well. That's what interdependence is about. You see, liberty, slide number 10, does not mean that it is our right to do whatever scripture does not condemn. Christian liberty is our freedom to limit ourselves as much as possible to help others grow. This is from a commentary on the book of Romans by Dr. Jim Ullman, who was one of my theology professors in my undergrad, and he wrote a book entitled Accept One Another, and I am forever grateful for his influence in my life. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Christian liberty has powerful limits, which is an interesting thought in our current culture that seems to be so determined to ensure our personal rights and freedom and even our Christian culture seems to echo the sentiment to secure our personal liberty above all else. Yes, we are free. We are free to make ourselves a slave to everyone. And the last one, and one more minute. Looking in and loving out might require resigning from some unhelpful roles and signing up for new ones. My client, all those years ago, resigned from her role as criticizer and controller. She signed up for new ones. She decided to be an encourager and a cheerleader. My question to you this morning is what roles do you need to resign from? And what new ones would you like to sign up for? Do you need to stop being the judge? looking for the Barbie shoe that's out of place? Or do you need to look for what people are doing well, catch them doing something right, and actually affirm them and verbalize that to them? What do you need to change to make every effort that leads to peace and mutual edification? Because this is what brings glory to God. Above all, I urge each one of us to get back to the place of grace to the place of acceptance, the way Christ accepted us.